welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. You do that by listening to the valuable interviews we have here each week. And also with my four levels of online training that teaches you how to beat the competition and become a product master. You'll find out more about that at the same place where the show notes are for this episode. That's the everydayinnovator.com slash 143. Now, product management is the economic engine of society. That's a really big deal. It drives value creation. Without products, whether they be tangible items like consumer goods, such as toothpaste or toilet paper, or a service such as Uber or a checking account, or any other form of product you can think of, the economic system we enjoy would not exist. It is driven by products and new product development. It is through innovation, the creation of new products, the value is created for customers and for organizations. And because of that, your role contributing to product innovation is vital, not just to your organization, but to society. Now, while your role is critical in this value creation process, it also gives you unique insights, unique experiences that prepares you to have a different perspective of the organization than really any other role does. Insights that equip you for an even larger role, if you wish. This role is creating a more valuable organization. And you can go from building better products to building a better organization. Phrases like organizational improvement, performance improvement, quality management, and performance excellence are all used to describe such transformations. My guest has been helping organizations make performance improvements for many years. He seeks to inspire and lead people and organizations to achieve organizational excellence. And don't think this is just about improving the bottom line. Organizational excellence is creating a positive work environment, along with being a responsible contributor to the community. His name is Adam Cohen. I hope you enjoy the discussion and learning how product managers and innovators can have a larger role in organizational performance. Adam, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Hey, it's great to be here. I appreciate it, Chad. Well, I'm glad we could have the opportunity to talk. We met some, I don't know, maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago, at a company you were with at the time that was going through a performance improvement event. And it's a topic that I really like for a couple of reasons. One, I don't, I don't know too many organizations that are not concerned about improving their performance. You know, in some sense of performance, whether it's for employees, customers, the community, you know, some combination and at the same time, I think it's something that product managers are really suited for. And so it's a topic I like to bring to product managers. Before we get into that aspect of it, though, we should probably have some context here. Uh, what does it really mean for organizations to improve their performance? There's this term that gets used a lot, performance excellence. Tell us what is going on when we think about improving performance. Well, most organizations, when they talk about performance improvement, um, they're really talking about a couple things. One is the bottom line. You know, they're looking for how they can make money or how they can save money. And that's most organizations. Now, the one you met me at a few years ago uh, was an organization that was doing what we term um, performance excellence. And performance excellence, uh, what it is, it's basically an integrated approach to improving the value that an organization provides to the customers, to its stakeholders, like workforce, board, uh, the communities that it works in. And it basically involves um, a top-down, a top down, so strategy, vision, objectives, 
goals, top-down alignment with bottom-up um, product feedback from customers, feedback from the frontline workforce, and then the processes in the middle that it takes to deliver on that. So it's creating a system that improves um, the way the entire organization works, not just how much it costs to make a product or how much margin you get on a product after you're done filtering in your R&D and you know all your indirect costs and all that stuff. So it's an integrated approach. Now, performance improvement at the product level um, can can take many different shapes. Um, one of the shapes it can take is to be um, providing extensions on a product or um, the way a product feature um, uh, replies to a customer's need, their experience, um, their requirement, their use of the product. Um, it could be taking out um, inefficiencies from the production of the product. So there's lots of different ways that we can talk about both excellence, which in my terminology is the way a whole organization operates, or improvement, which is what happens at the process product line. Okay. So performance excellence, it's a coined term. It conveys this system in place. It absolutely is. And it was coined by Baldridge. Okay. Uh, the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award and Performance Excellence Program has coined this term. So you can look up the exact definition if you want. Okay. So performance excellence comes out of that. And when people hear about Baldridge Quality Award, I think sometimes it's in that category of things that a company might get just for their marketing, you know, for publicity. It's actually itself a way of improving an organization and through performance excellence and getting the recognition once you're there. But it's not something that happens overnight, is it? It's actually 100% impossible to get through reputation, marketing, or any other type of promotional activity. You must, and it does take time, as you mentioned, you must um, integrate activities from strategy all the way down to the front line. Um, it requires demonstrated results um, in leadership, in financial, in customer, in workforce, mm -hmm. and in process or product performance. Demonstrated results. Um, that's half of the thousand points um, that it takes to earn a Baldrige Award. And many, many organizations have tried um, thousands and thousands um, and there's only a couple of hundred at the national level that have ever won an award. And the process of going through to try to earn the award, I mean, mm -hmm. th that, that, that's the real benefit, right, is you go yeah, through the right. work to improve the organization overall. Earning the award, great recognition, but working great your way towards there, really important. Yeah, what you get, I mean, what you get is an assessment, right? You get to assess mm -hmm. and you get to learn and you get awareness, self-awareness, really the best kinds you could get um, from using the criteria. The criteria themselves are a set of about 200 plus questions. Um, and the answers are yours, your organizations. They um, belong to, to your organization and they're specific to your organization's needs, your customers' needs, stakeholders and the communities that you work in. So, you know, we can ask the same question to a hundred different organizations and each of them can have a unique approach to it. Um, and, and that's, I think, what's really useful about the framework itself and that criteria mm -hmm. framework. Yeah, and this is a journey. You can tell us what your experience has been. Organizations seeking performance excellence, you know, trying to earn the Baldrige Award or other, otherwise use it as a means of improving their performance. I believe I had heard the statistic that or the actual award winners, they had been working for on average five years to before they won the award, right? So that five years of going through performance excellence activities to try to get their organizational system working better. 
And really, that's usually just the formal part of applying the Baldrige framework to their organization. Many of them had been doing things, for example, some of them have um, long tenures in doing total quality management or, uh-huh. um, you know, Dr. Deming's principles and other or lean practices or Six Sigma for many, many years um, before that. Or they had a very strong strategic planning process um, or strong leadership or strong workforce development or strong customer experience processes. So those things were a solid foundation and it kind of led them probably to learn about the Baldrige framework and then they started applying it takes them five years or so on average to get to the you know national level where they could get recognition okay and that is the context i wanted to pursue more with you this performance excellence context Mm -hmm. as opposed to just individual product improvement certainly important and a piece of this as product managers we're really suited to have a voice in this and be contributing in a meaningful way for performance excellence organizations that want to work better as a system and improve for everyone. Before we go there, it's probably helpful to talk about an example or two. Can you share an organization, you know, what they were like before, what they were like after, what what kind of things were involved? Well, sure. I mean, I'll talk from my own experience first and then I can relay other examples, but you know, the organization I worked in was called OMI and it was a a business unit of CH2M Hill companies, which is now just called CH2M, um, very large project delivery organization doing engineering construction projects, um, ended up being about a $7 billion with a B um, per year company when I left in 2000 and, uh, 2009. Um, but OMI, this business unit, was an operator of water and wastewater systems under contract, mostly to municipalities. Um, and the company itself was $300,000 in revenue when it started the journey um, and ended up at $300 million in revenue. Um, and, you know, along the way, what changed in the organization? Well, one of the things that changed in the organization was the way um, people were able to innovate and to improve the way that they worked every day. Um, you know, the, the old term of empowerment, you know, was something that was, um, you know, really integrated into the operations of the organization from day to day. We taught managers and leaders um, how to get the best ideas from the front line. Um, we taught them to work with frontline people like a product or a service delivery person um, right at the front line to innovate. Um, and, and I think people tend to look at innovation, you know, as something that is inaccessible to the everyday person, you know, that it's some kind of a gigantic uh, groundbreaking or industry changing um, new approach or method, you know, like digital music or autonomous vehicles or something that, you know, those of us who are, you know, working in the day to day world think, oh, well, we're not going to. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. We're not going to land a rocket ship on a pad in the middle of the ocean. You know, those kind of innovations is what we think about. But we really thought about day-to-day innovation um, and day-to-day change in our organization. Um, we got to the point where customers knew that they were um, contracted in a relationship with us, but became invested in our approach to running our organizations, where they would come to our annual meetings, for example, um, and share their perspectives um, and and tell us stories about how great we were at service or the problem we solved for them or their communities. And, and there were things that our organization, we didn't even know that these things were happening because they were happening right out at the front line. Um, and our customers were willing and excited to come tell all the rest of us about it. Hmm. Um, you know, we went from um, you know, that $300,000 to $300 million, and we kept our overhead rate, you're going to like this, below 10%. 
for almost the entire time. So how did we do that, right? I mean, we did it through the power of our people and the way that, you know, we reconsidered, you know, really from every moment, the way we delivered service, our business model, um, processes and the way they worked, where there was waste, where they could be um, more effective in meeting a customer needs. So the change in the organization was dramatic in that way. We also got to the point where strategy became part of everybody's job every day. Um, strategy usually is the leadership team's um, pur- um, purview. Uh-huh. They create the strategy. It lives on their bookshelf. <laughs> Often it doesn't come off their bookshelf, but it lives on their bookshelf and on their desks, and nobody else really contributes to it. We got to the point where we were able to um, deploy that strategy all the way down to each team at the front line delivering service every day. And so we'd have a person who didn't even graduate you know, from high school who was um, a utility worker at a public um, utility under contract to us who could say, this is how I contribute to the company's strategy because my wow. team has goals that link to it and we measure something that links all the way up. So those are just some stories and examples of how things changed in the organization. Pretty dramatic change there from the 300,000 to 300 million growth over this period and uh, do it while controlling overhead. So there wasn't you know, there wasn't big bang innovation. There wasn't deep R&D going on. It sounds like just incremental, let's get better ideas from the front line, and let's put them into action, and let's innovate every day what we're doing now. And that last point you said about the strategy and it being part of everyone's job, that's really powerful when an individual employee, the work that I'm doing, when I know that how my work contributes to the overall mission and vision of the organization, and why it's important. Because I think a lot of us walk around, and the the studies tell us that when it comes to job um, contentment, you know, worker contentment in organizations, it's not great. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of us are walking around going, no one really cares about the work I'm doing, right? And they, they feel disconnected at times with how their contributions really apply to the bigger picture. Yeah, in order to achieve that, it was kind of a multidimensional shift. We had to have um, senior leaders and executives understand what strategy meant at the front line. So to be able to say and be able to couch it in terms that front line uh-huh. team members would be able to understand. So in other words, you couldn't have, you could, but it had to be translated. You couldn't just have this incredible strategy about growth or some new market or some partnership sure. or collaboration. You had to be able to put it in terms, you know, that and be able to execute it with actions that were contributory from the front line up. So there was that shift. And then there's also a shift from the front line so that, you know, an individual employee could say while they were out there, you know, at three o'clock in the morning fixing some, you know, broken water main um, that, you know, they had to be thinking not just about the water main, but they had to be thinking about safety. They had to be thinking about um, their customer because, you know, the, the, um, the poor residents who, you know, whose water was cut off in the middle the night and then the city that those residents lived in and counted on for them to, them to provide water to them, um, they were going to answer a customer service um, questionnaire here mm-hmm. over the course of you know a month or a year. And the employee had to be thinking, what I'm doing here today is fixing this water line and I'm providing a customer experience because you know, we want to make our customers happy and we want to do it in the very best way possible. So, you know, it was that kind of shift both from the top down and the bottom up that, mm-hmm. that was able to create that connection and linkage. Yeah. It wasn't always perfect, but, sure. you know, like you said, in most organizations, strategy is just, you know, this thing that's way out there and we're discontented and we think, 
nobody knows what I'm doing or cares what I'm doing and they don't understand what I'm doing. They don't understand how hard it is or the challenges that I face. Right. Yeah. And getting that aligned and having people care about the customer experience, those are our big items. So it makes a organization work better and people care more. When it comes to making a, you know, when an organization commits to going down a path of performance excellence and starting to look at how they can improve across, across the entire organization, as you just shared, you know, ultimately everyone's involved in that, but there are people kind of leading the charge. My position is product managers are really uniquely oriented to have a role in that. And I, I think this comes in two perspectives that are really probably the, the just two sides of the same coin. One is just because of our experience, we're, we typically work across the organization. So we're more likely to already have a system view and probably a view that, frankly, no one else in the organization has because most people see the system, see the organization as a collection of functions. And we see how things really play off one another because we work so cross-functionally. Then on the other side of that coin is as product managers, a lot of us got into it because we want to have more meaningful impact on the business as a whole, on the organization. And this is a way I think product managers can move into senior leadership roles over time. So what do you see as the characteristics of, of the leaders, of the people kind of pushing this you know, performance excellence plan into place for an organization? What are the characteristics that make someone good at that, that so the people that can help out with this effort? You know, the main characteristics that I see are for people who are most effective in that role and I'll tell you about ones that aren't as effective in the mm-hmm. role, but the ones that are most effective in the role, um, you know, really have in the same way that I just described it, although it's their, um, their scope is a little more narrow because they're product focused or product line focused, but they have both the strategic view. They understand the market where their product is being used. Mm-hmm. They understand the customer features and requirements. They may even hopefully when they're most effective and organizations that are really good at this make this happen, they maybe even have connections with the customers. Right. So they're not just manufacturing product managers, but they're really in a, in a lean terminology or, or organizations that use lean there, they'd be called a value stream manager. Hmm. They understand the value that a product um, is supposed to create at the, you know, at, at its point of use where the customer is going to use it. And then they understand if all the way backwards from, okay, we've, we've got it in customer's hands. How is it distributed? What are the delivery me- mechanisms and models for distributing right. it? And then before that, the next, you know, the previous step is they understand how that product is, is, um, how its final quality is assessed. Then they understand the manufacturing process and they understand the points of control or quality, um, assurance along that line of manufacturing the product. Then you go back one step further and now they understand how the product was developed. In other words, it came out of R&D or it came from some place in the organization that maybe they were even involved in that, but they understand um, how that product was developed and then how it needed to be executed. So the person who understands um, from the from the, the closest to the product, you know, the manufacturing of it all the way out to, you know, its origins and then all the way out to its use is the person who's going to be most effective because they have the best chance of optimizing that entire cycle. Um, so what does that take? Um, it takes strategic view. It also takes technical knowledge. You know, they don't have to be an expert in, you know, the manufacturing technology, but they better understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes good communication. It takes interaction because you have to be able to interact, as you said, with folks, stakeholders across the organization, and you have to be able to interact with customers mm-hmm. um, if you're going to be really effective at this. You also need to be able to lead up 
Um, you've got, mm. you know, you've got executives who are probably, um, you know, turning, turning the cranks on cost, um, or they're turning the crank on turnaround time and they want faster delivery, um, because faster delivery probably means more volume and, in their mind, more volume means more product and more product, you know, goes to customer means more money. Now, we know that that may not necessarily be case, case because there are limits on customer demand. So, again, an effective, you know, manager in the product delivery sense has to understand all that because he or she needs to be able to go back to senior leaders and say, that's great that you want me to crank up the, um, the volume here. But I also understand, you know, from our distribution team, you know, and our uh-huh. sales team that demand is only X. And if we flood the market, we're going to do one of two things. You know, we're either going to create inventory on our side that costs us money, or we're going to drive the price down because there's too much product in the marketplace. Which would you like me to do? Right. And hopefully an executive would go, well, I don't want you to do either of those things. Thank you for producing to demand. Please continue to do that in the most efficient way possible. <laughs> right. So here's the, so here's the other side of that coin. Here's the inefficient or ineffective product manager. This is the one that um, says, look, what I do is I manage a team of people that make product and all I care about is making product. I make as much as I can and the quality and the, in the highest quality that I can, you know, for the resources that I've got. Um, I schedule people, I schedule time on the floor, I schedule resources. See where I'm coming from uh-huh. with that? Right. We got to, and it's a narrow view that those are the less effective and it's not always about the person because the person may have capabilities to do all the things that I mentioned earlier. But the organization may say, hey, product manager, we want you to make product. Right. You're a maker. Make, make, make. Yeah, that certainly happens. We have organizations, you know, product managers that feel confined in their role, that want to have a, a larger role, bigger impact. And interestingly, the very same organizations, when you ask the, the senior executives, they may say they want their product managers to have a more strategic perspective, right? They want them bringing forward ideas of how, how we help the business overall. So I think there is that pull there. There's just isn't always the communicated message that that's what product managers could become and should really be becoming to contribute to the organization. Right. Or there's limits that the organization is creating or imposing, you know, where the the leader would like that um, product manager to be more strategic, but the limits that are placed on him or her, you know, exactly. You know, the old uh, Drucker, you know, what gets measured gets managed and that kind of thing. Right. So I tell you, I want you to be strategic involved, I'm a collaborator. I tell you I want all these things, but then I measure you and I grade your performance and I incentivize you um, on product volume, right? Mm-hmm. And turner and cycle time, you know, right. a couple other things that drive me, you know, to do to to certain behaviors. Yep, absolutely. And that list of what makes someone effective, those effective qualities, that fits really well with what a lot of product managers care about, right? And having that strategic view of the technical knowledge. Understanding communications are important, those interactions and relationships. And then at times, you know, having to speak power to truth, you know, l- l- leading up and, and, uh, and telling executives like in your example, right? Well, we, we can do A or B. <laughs> Where do you want us to really be? That's good. So help us understand what are some of the key elements then to performance improvement? What, what goes into a, a structure to make this happen? First thing is selection of what to improve. Okay. Um, and this is where a product manager can be strategic, um, whether they're strategic from that organizational level where I s- talked about earlier, understanding the vision or the objectives that the organization's going after over the long term. That's great um, to have a perspective or a filter that he or she can apply um, from that uh, level is great. 
but they could even go down a level or two. And, and the decision about what to improve is important because typically we're, um, we're exposed to many opportunities to improve and to decide which one to go after, um, is challenging. So uh-huh. what do we tend to do? Well, let's go after the one that has the quick fix, right? Um, let's go after the easy one. Let's go after the one that we're comfortable with because, um, we came from a technical background. We're a quality engineer. We came mm. from that background. So we're going to go after the one that has to do with the manufacturing line. Um, you know, that, that one, um, bottleneck or stop gap over there in the manufacturing line. We're going to mess with that, you know, and that may be the right place to spend our time. But choosing what to improve and having um, a set of characteristics or elements that you use as a filter to pick your project is the first step. Mm-hmm. So when you, once you pick your project, um, you know now we go to some of those tried and true um, methods that have been in place, you know, since Dr. Deming, you know, went to, you know, since we kicked him out of the U.S. and made him go to Japan. <laughs> Uh, right. You know, we, we want to do the PDSA and whether you call it PDSA, whether you call it Six Sigma Demaic or whether you, you know, use lean terminology, it's basically about the same things. It's about, um, once we've decided what we're going to improve, um, in Dr. Deming's terms, we make some predictions about what it's going to look like. We make a plan and, you know, we, we spend our time planning in, um, in project management. You know, we know that if we spend about 30% of our time planning, what we're going to do to make something better, to improve, to solve a problem. And we have a much better chance of succeeding. You know, the less time we spend in that plan, you know, the less likelihood it is that we have of hitting the target. Uh So once we, once we sort of set out what our target's going to be, you know, then we, then it's time to experiment. Um, it's time to design and try and try some different options and alternatives and see if they work. Um, we measure them, you know, we observe them. Sometimes it's not, um, quantifiable. Sometimes we also have to use, you know, qualitative information. We may need customer feedback or workforce feedback. These things are, um, complex. And so it's not always, you can't always just look at a gauge or a dial and tell you if something's working. That may be part of the answer. So we have to measure and determine whether it's working. Um, and then, you know, we make some evaluation of, you know, whether it made sense and, and we, um, implement, um, from there, you know, the idea is to monitor and what we often forget to do. And sometimes in our, you know, current state of being, you know, we call in experts to help us make the improvement. We've got a lean, um, you know, black belt, or we've got a six sigma black belt, or we've got some consultant or process improvement guy like me or, you know, friends of mine. And, and they come in and all that's great. And, and I typically don't do this kind of work because I feel like it leaves the team, the product manager and his or her team just holding the bag after we pull that reset source out. You know, once the improvement's in place, who owns it? I mean, right. is it going to sustain? How do we continue it? Um, and, and how do we even monitor or evaluate it if we weren't really the ones that, that owned it when we implemented it? So those are the key elements. Um, but really, you know, the first place is picking the right um, project, picking the right place to expend our resources and use some filters, come up with the characteristics and they could relate to strategy in the organization. They should relate to customer um, value and, and other stakeholder value. So we de- design that ahead of time, work uh-huh. with your team, design it ahead of time. And then when we've got a range of potential opportunities to spend our time and resources on, apply that filter first. In this PDSA cycle, so we're that's plan, do, study, act uh, that you start that we're going through. And we're running these experiments, seeing what works, what doesn't work, and you know, responding and acting on that information, and trying to then plan a new improvement. This is all taking place at the same time while the organization is still operating. 
Oh yeah. And, and, and always. Yeah. And so there's this, uh, you know, kind of tension between we're trying to improve the organization as a whole and we're still trying to meet all the objectives we have for this year of 10% growth and, you know, everything else that's on, on the plate. Right. How does one manage through this tension? Do you have people dedicated to help helping with this effort or is it really, we, we have to figure out a way that we spend six hours a day doing operations and two hours a day doing improvement? That's a, it's a great question. And it's, um, always, as you said, tension, but it's, it should be dynamic tension. Um, at the front line, you know, up to leadership, you know, there, you can think of people's responsibilities, you know, as sort of being, um, um, I, I guess it's, it's a, it's two parts of the same, um, equation. Any time that you spend not in production, that you spend away from production is, is time that might not be adding value to the organization, to its customers. However, at the same time, any time you spend in production where something's not efficient, optimized, right. or providing the most amount of value is the time that, you know, you're making product that may not fully bring value. So how do you balance those? And, and that's really the challenge. And, and I think it's a really great question. So here, here are some solutions. Here's different things we've seen. Um, I'll go from zero um, additional resources all the way up to full additional resources. So zero additional resources is um, we're trying to do this as part of our current job, our day-to-day -day job. How do we do that? Um, different ways. One is we could we could um, set aside almost like a test area or a test um, um, environment so that we can and, and maybe you take you know part of your resources and that person or people work in that test environment right alongside regular manufacturing so mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like you know think of it like an exit ramp you know mm -hmm. from the basic line that you're continuing to manufacture now will that reduce your volume yeah it'll reduce your volume because you're going to carve off some of the product or some of the activities of that process and you're going to expose those activities like a sample set to your potential solution. Um, and you've got to have somebody who's doing that. And again, you need a, you need to feed it. So you're going to take some volume out. So that's, that's one way to do it. Um, another way to do it is, um, and this, and I've seen this, this is kind of, this is popular. Um, but to do events, basically we, we call them rapid improvement events. This is a Kaizen, you know, continual improvement term. Um, but the idea is we can either spend months and months and months, a little bit at a time trying to make change uh -huh. or, we can take the team, turn off the process for four hours or eight hours, or in some cases, they'll do it for up to a week. Um, take the team, pull them out and say, all right, we've got our ideas. We've already decided which ones we're going to test, and we're going to go into testing mode for four hours, eight hours, or a week, and we're going to solve this problem. And when we're done, it's going to be done. It's uh -huh. not going to take us months. You know, We're not going to get off-tracked. Um, you know, we're not going to forget what our original purpose was six months from now. We're going to do it right now. Mm -hmm. And, and that does take resources. And again, that may slow volume. Um, you may be able to make it up over the course of the month, but that's a, a balance the organization has to decide. Right. Um, and then the other kind is, you know, bring in teams, um, you know, bring in experts. I've seen this, you know, it, it can work. Um, the key to bringing in, you know, black belts, uh, bringing in consultants, bringing in, you know, other team members from other units, um, or resources to bear is that the unit that owns the process at the end is so involved and has a high level of integration that when all those resources are gone, because they are going to be gone, you can't keep them forever. They're not part of the solution. They were part of defining and implementing the solution. Right. Um, that, that you still have the capability to sustain it. 
So there's a variety, but typically it's a, an organizational choice, uh-huh. um, and you have to choose um, to to bring improvement to bear while you're managing, you know, production. Yeah, and it is something that people involved have to do themselves, right? So they might get guidance, they might get added resources to help, but they're the ones that are closest to, the people in the organization are the ones closest to the problems. They have the best insights into how to innovate and create create new value for them and for customers. And they're the ones that are going to have to continue pulling it off, right, after the thing's put in place. And there's, you know, and, and that's that's a traditional way of defining, you know, empowerment and, you know, people closest to the um, customer and to the process have the best chance of knowing, you know, how to make it succeed. But there's other benefits to it, right? We talked a little bit earlier about um, employees not feeling like their work is valued. Right. One of the ways it's not valued is that we don't ask for their input. Guess who knows the answers? The folks who are working. And if you ask them what the answers are, and then you give them the tools and resources, whether it's extra people or some time to be able to test and implement those, they're going to feel good. They're going to feel control over their work. They're going to feel like the organization cares about them. They're going to feel like, you know, I'm more than just the person who runs, you know, the computer that, um, that, um, makes this, um, set of our process go forward. I'm the person that also knows how to solve a problem. Um, uh-huh. And the organization recognizes that, you know, at the same time that, you know, you're investing in that person by allowing them and giving them the opportunity to experiment, to, um, to succeed, sometimes to fail and to learn from that, to communicate across their process with other people in the process. So you're building capability in a person that, you know, may be valuable to your organization in the future. That could be your future product manager. That could be your future, you know, operations manager that could be your future vp of operations right. that could be your future ceo you know and so you just don't know what you're going to get out of that um and at the you know in the near term you're going to get a person who feels good because they were able to affect change in their job they mm-hmm. made an improvement and they could sustain it afterwards let me ask you about the product manager who wants to be the future senior leader uh, you know, we have people that listen to this podcast, the Everyday Innovators are listening across the range of experience, but a good number of them, probably the majority, have, you know, around 10 plus years of experience, and they might already be in a role where they can help help the organization improve in such a way, right? The, across the organization, do performance excellence. But a lot of us are wanting to maybe move in that direction, and we're just building products right now, Right. And I'm, I often think of this in terms of, well, how do we go from building better products to building a better organization? What is something maybe that that younger, less experienced product manager could start doing, uh, maybe make a habit out of that would set them up for success later if they do want to work their way into this larger impact, larger influence in the organization and ha- have a role in improvement? So you're going to, I hope you'll like this one, but my, my key thing is learn to ask questions. All right. Learn to ask questions and to listen for the answers. But in learning to ask questions, prepare your questions, you know, think ahead of time. What's a good question? What's a, what would be a good question to ask the sales manager? What would be a good question to ask distribution? What would be a good question to ask my coworker who's been here longer than me? What would be a good question to ask senior leaders in town hall? You know, Uh when we get a quarterly town hall, you know, ask good questions. Um, What do you get from that? Well, you get an increased perspective. You get learning and knowledge. Um, You get a person who asks a good question doesn't have the answer, which is fine. But the other people who hear that good question think, wow, 
that person's smart. I never would have thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't have thought to ask that question. That's a good question. I can't wait to hear the answer. Right. And so you, you're actually perceived as being intelligent, even though you're asking a question that you probably don't have the answer to. Um, you know, we as young product managers and even as experienced ones, and sometimes it gets harder as we get older, mm-hmm. um, our experience causes to feel like we know a lot. And so we stop asking questions. Right. When we're young, we have a little bit of a different problem. We feel like if we ask a question, it's demonstrating how little we know. Mm-hmm. And then people will doubt our capability and our competency. So that's why I say not just ask a question, but prepare and ask a good question. You know, do a little research. Think about it. Think about the interactions. Think about the levels, you know, of connection between different processes and ask that question. Um, you know, so that's the, that's, I think the key thing. And, and then as you, as you grow and mature as a manager and leader, that ability to ask questions will be very beneficial to you because you won't know what's going on in all aspects of the organization at all sure. the time. You may not even know what's going on on your product line mm-hmm. to be able to go out into the, you know, onto the floor and be able to look at a couple of your team members and then with some data that you got you know, at your desk or on your computer to be able to say, Hey, tell me a little bit about why X, Y, and Z is happening. And, uh-huh. you know, over the last two weeks, I noticed this, you know, what's going on to be able to ask that question, um, is going to bring you the ability to then lead and manage effectively. It's a great tip. One characteristic I see across the board for good leaders is they often know how to ask really powerful questions. And this is a way as product managers, we can stand out a little bit, right? We get, we get some recognition. Uh, if we ask the right question in the right setting in the right way, it probably helps us to start thinking more deeply and make some connections between things too. Thank you for sharing that tip. And another thing I love to share with listeners are innovation quotes. And I always ask a guest to bring one and uh, then share why you chose that one too. And what do you have for us? So, you know, I, I tend to get tired of the same old innovation quotes, right? You get the mm-hmm. Thomas Edison, right? He didn't fail. He, he, he uh, discovered, you know, a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Or, right. you know, this, this one about Einstein and, you know, you, you can only solve a problem at the level at which it was created or the definition of insanity. I just, I get tired of those. So I look for things that don't have necessarily have a direct connection to innovation, but lead me to think about innovation. And, and one that I've come across and I've used with some of my clients over the last couple of years is a John F. Kennedy quote. And he's mm-hmm. had, he said many, many, many quotable um, um, sayings. And, and the one that I like, um, and I use it for strategic planning too, but it's those who look um, only to the past or the present are certain to miss the future. And so it doesn't discount the past or the present. This is where we get our information to learn. What it's, what it's telling us, I believe, is to be able to understand where we are and where we came from um, and then project out into the future. So right. asking the question, like I said earlier, is a way of thinking about the future. Um, it's a way of trying to gather information so that we can make smarter decisions in the future. So we might be able to take a different action in the future. Um, that's why I like about it. It's, it's future focused because everything else is already done. Um, I, I heard, um, I was listening to NPR the other night and there was, they were talking about neural, um, cognition and how quickly, um, the past be, um, the present becomes past. Hmm. And even as you and I speak to each other, um, it's, it's some portion of a second that while your brain is trying to calculate and understand what I'm saying, it's already past. So there is actually no present. And so if we get caught today and yesterday and in the past, you know, we're done. We're cooked. So mm. we always need to be a couple of steps ahead thinking for the future. And, and to me, 
that's what innovation is about. Is about it's about what can I do in a different way that's discontinuous. It's a, a little bit of a break from you know the way we do things every single day that might make a difference you know for value or for customers um, or for myself or for my mm-hmm. team in the future. Excellent. That's a good application of the JFK quote and one I did not know. So I appreciate you bringing that to us too. How can listeners just find out about the work that you do if they want to follow up with you? My website is accelerantperformance.com. That's A-C-C-E-L-E-R-A-N-T, um, Accelerant, um, accelerating the journey towards excellence and towards improvement. Uh-huh. Um, they can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, my email address is adam.cohen, C-O-H-E-N, at accelerantperformance.com. Great, Adam. I appreciate the insights and performance excellence and how we can be involved in improving our organizations and you taking the time to share those insights with us. My pleasure. It's great to be here, Chad. Good luck to everybody and uh, keep moving forward. Look to the future. Thanks for listening. If we're not already connected on LinkedIn, please send me a connection request. Just search for Chad McAllister PhD and you'll find my profile. For a summary of the discussion with Adam, just go to the everydayinnovator.com slash 143. From that page, you can also download the Product Mastery Roadmap, which shows you how to go from product manager to product master. All that and more is at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 143. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.